0: Hello and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. This week's episode features part two of my conversation with percussionist, arts administrator, educator, and composer Jan Williams. I mentioned last time This might be a bit of inside baseball for non-musician listeners, particularly non-percussionists, but it was truly an honor to have Jan on the show. He is such an important figure in contemporary music and certainly in the world of percussion, which is where I spend a great deal of time and energy. I think that many musicians will be interested to hear him talk about some of the composers uh, that he's worked with over the years, Jan has been deeply involved in contemporary music and worked closely with a number of luminary composers during his career. We chatted about his background and he began to talk about his time as a creative associate and later faculty member at the University of Buffalo. Part two of our conversation picks up here with the story about performing Morton Feldman's music.
1: Funny thing, a funny story I have to tell you about, uh, performance at New Music America, 1988 in Miami, of Philip Gustin in a beautiful cathedral, very live acoustics, which works best for these pieces. We start, and we there was an audience, maybe a hundred people, 150 maybe, I don't know, quite a good size. Um, and so we start, and about an hour or so into the piece, you know, I'm concentrating like crazy, and I happen to look up. I don't see anybody. Maybe two or three people. And I'm thinking, wow, this <laughs> is amazing that, that so many people managed to, you know, r- r- laugh so soon. I I didn't think any more about it. you just went on playing. And at the end, when it finally ended, there was a. All these heads came up. They were all lying down in the pews. Oh. <laughs> That's they, great. Pews. they were all lying down. Not all, but a lot of people were lying down, relaxing. It was great. And all of a, so at the end, they all popped up and. <laughs> There were actually quite a few people at the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, that was a pretty great story. That's but, a great story.
1: Uh, yeah, those, those, those pieces, I'm happy that they're getting done now again.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's too bad that uh, we never got any more uh, percussion music from Morton from Feldman. I, I noted that in the in the interview that you did with him in, in the early 80s, the one I was talking about earlier was 83, Um at the very last question was uh, uh, you know his last statement was something uh, by I certainly want to try and write an extended percussion piece but I but I guess he didn't uh, didn't quite make it
1: there no no I'm proud of him about that uh, I, I don't know why he was talking about a piece for string quartet and lots of triangles and you know whatever yeah uh, his writing for percussion was really pretty fabulous uh, in terms of the orchestra pieces a lot of times he's extended sections of lots of symbols and lots of triangles or lots of this and lots of that you know that sonorities he used to but no he now i was always yeah so yeah yeah
0: so um, uh, several other composers that we could talk about, but I, I do want to get on to some other uh, topics here. So we might, if we have time, we can come back and talk about uh, some of the other um, folks that you worked with, Lucas Foss or Frederick Zjefsky, for instance. Uh, so we might come back to yeah. that. But I wanted to talk about uh, <clears throat> something about more contemporary landscape of percussion and um, and just to sort of get your, your feeling on things and, and get your beat on things. Uh, my dear friend and former teacher Alan Atti often talks about he, he jokingly calls the good old days of new music, and I wonder if that phrase resonates with you at all and, and where you think where you think sort of new music is these days, or if that seems too obscure of a question, maybe where percussion new, new music for percussion is these days. Uh, anything with that resonate with you?
1: Yeah, the good old days. I suppose it's natural for people like myself at an age where our our careers are basically behind us I suppose it's natural to to have a a soft spot for that repertoire that we were playing in the peaks of our careers those pieces that we spent so much time working on and and developing and composers yeah, you know that they, they were good all day. I mean they were good, great days, good a good time for us who were in the who, who were able to work uh, with directly with living composers and creating perf- their music. Um, so in a sense, yeah, you know, they were great old days, but do do I you know do I think that they they were the, the good old days? I think there are good new days too. I mean, it's, it's a lot of very important uh, music being written now. Percussion has come a long way in terms of the 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 education of young percussionists, not only technique, but I think in um, their in, it, that certain certain teachers. Instilling this sense to a degree, like Paul did, uh, that um, to marvel at the new and to work at the new and and the not, and to be constantly searching for a new ways to to express yourself as a player. Technique certainly has proved incredibly since since those days yeah. uh, when we were when we started. You know. Um, I've been on the jury at the Munich competition three times, a percussion jury, and over the years, and to, to, to hear these young players, they're just phenomenal. And also, last time at Munich in 2014, the pieces are getting so much better, and they're the finding pieces, and they're also doing several of the players that really invented new pieces that you wouldn't consider for... As a competition piece, necessarily, you know, kind of with theater elements or whatever. Uh, so, I, yeah, I was very excited about that, and you know, I was I, I had the chance a couple of weeks ago to to sit in on the juries of the, for the performer certificate at Eastman, and these are undergraduate juniors and and, grad, and first year grad students playing an incredible uh, array of um, pieces, demonstrating enormous repertoire. Uh, and, mu- and musically, I thought for the, for the most part, very very good. So, so, uh, so
0: who are some of the who are some of the contemporary composers that interest you?
1: Oh well, you know I listen to um, Q two a lot. I stream uh, from New York, and I'm I'm listening to young composers all the time. Um, but I don't know. It's whoever I'm hearing. You know, when I my favorite new music composer or favorite new composer is the one I'm listening to at the moment, whose music really turns me on. You know, yeah, that's my new favorite. So it changes daily, but uh, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of of um, David Lang's music. I'm a big you know, but it's a broad gamut of uh, of of Pieces and I'm hearing new stuff, new new pieces all the time uh, from composers that I don't know, obviously. Or yeah. I've never heard. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, exactly. From from my
0: perspective, it's sort of interesting uh, to hear you uh, talk about this um, this idea of where where we're at today as a percussive art. And one of the things that you wrote in one of your interviews was that innovation should be a driving force, and that. The interaction of the performer and the composer, similar to what you were talking about earlier with Paul Price and composers and performers working together to develop the, the repertoire. One of the things that I see happening often is the same pieces getting played over and over and and that the percussion world is so insular and small. I mean, it was actually one of the big reasons that I wanted to do this podcast. I mean you and Alantti are the only percussionists that I've had on uh, on this show. And, and part of the reason for me was just an exploration of creativity and, and how do we put what we do into the larger world of creativity, not, not even just concert, you know music, but but the wider world of, of creative art and where where this thing that, that we do or that you have done all these years and that I've done, Uh, where that fits in this in this wide world of creativity. But what I see a lot is that in the in the percussion world, which I see as kind of a small, a pretty small world in the larger world of music, and certainly within the larger world of creativity. But I see that world as pretty insular and small, and that they keep doing the same things over and over. And uh, I wonder if you what, what you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's, I'm not sure I agree with you 100% on that. Um, I mean, I, I understand what, where you're coming from. I mean, even in the sense of the Munich competition, the lists that I developed, you know, there's a lot of the same pieces on there. But the first time I did it was in 99. It's, it's the second time was in 2001 and then in 2014. And over the, the, those three times with the percussion lists, I've seen the additions of many new pieces, but most of the time they are the pieces that the that, stu- that the performers come up with as you know select to play, not the ones that the, the, the juries are prescribing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I I heard a lot of new stu- new stuff going on, but you know I'm I'm out of the academic scene. Now for 20 years almost, so I'm not directly, you know, like involved with, with uh, or knowledgeable about, about percussion programs in various university or academic or conservatory settings with that that amount. But yeah, I guess it. Yeah, it's a small, uh, relatively small um, world for us in that in that regard. Um,
0: uh, certainly you have, uh, you know, much more uh, perspective on this than I do and have seen things change over these years. And uh, so I was just curious to get your read on on where we were at today and, and where things are going. Um, it's
1: hard to generalize about that. You yeah, know, I mean, of course. Pockets of here, pockets there, people. And it all, all boils down to a person or a group or something that's got, you know— I don't know, soul percussion, their institute in the, you know, doing, or, or, or students grab, students who are interested in the particular, uh, who really, who are really interested in creating new repertoire who, who are, who are, are not solely interested in orchestra playing or whatever, uh, gravitate to the places, they go to those places where there's, you know, that stuff's going on. And that's all that's happening all over. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I taught it UB was not a conservatory. And my student, my the students I attracted were not coming there to learn to play or not to get to get a job in an orchestra or Many times they were non majors who didn't know what they were, or they were young percussionists coming out of high school who who, who, who didn't know what, whether they wanted music or not. And in a university, like a big public university with a large music department, you could take, you know, you can you can flail around a little bit, try things, see what. You know, and so I, you know, my teaching was fifty percent teaching, fifty percent playing all the time, and so my students were just thrown right into this world of uh, the creative associate world with all these crazy concerts of this new music and, 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 and many of them, it was really affected. It had a strong effect on on what they, what they wanted to do with their musical life or even, even, it opened their ears to the whole new world of possibilities. And so, you know, that was my, so my teaching was really totally dependent on what the students want, were interested in doing and what, you know, what uh, they wanted to study basic marimba technique or whatever, fine, I can know how to do that. But the percussion ensemble was the focus of the department and the repertoire that we did with that was kind of the, the focus. And... Some of my most interesting students and best students to work with were non-majors because they didn't have to do it. They did it because they were just, they had to play. I mean, they, Right. They wanted to. They couldn't, they couldn't eliminate that from their lives. They, they had to do it. And they were devoted and they practiced and they, you know, and then they went on to be a doctor or something, but they always had, that experience, and you know, and other students came as kind of really not very experienced or without a broad technique, and 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 discovered this world, and went on to you know, like Bobby Prevident and these guys. I mean, they, it was that that world of the Creative Associates and what was happening around there, that, and all those concerts that they got to hear and be involved in. And have Cage come and talk to them and work, you know, and we played for him. Yeah. yeah. It's a different a conservatory approach. You know, I, I didn't, I, that's all I wanted. To, the point I wanted to make, my particular trip.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was, uh, again, kind of one of these big picture questions. <clears throat> and it's about cultivating an artistic voice. And it seems to me that um, that can be chall- a challenging thing to do first of all, uh, and I wonder what, what your answer would be if I would say, if you're looking at the landscape today and and how one could cultivate an artistic voice, what do you see as the challenges or obstacles? But then what are the opportunities that, that uh, musicians have today that were different than, than what you had?
1: Developing an artistic voice, you mean as a player, basically, or as a player that also composers uh I mean, well i think you can take many it, ways to develop of you know a voice i mean I, yeah I you, you know. can
0: take the question however you'd like uh either as a as a performer and and i suppose in that sense it would be how do you choose music and how do you you know develop right. your repertoire and then or if you're a uh, on the more creative side, if you're a composer slash performer, then then that's would be a different answer. So uh, I'll either either way, whatever you'd like to yeah. to touch on. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, my, in my case, I you know I don't consider myself a composer. I wrote one temporary piece when I was a grad student, and you know it got published and a lot of people playing it. But so I'm not really a composer as such. I. But I, I have always, and I don't consider myself to be an improviser. Uh, but saying that, I've had an opportunity through the repertoire uh, to have a considerable input into how the final piece yeah. Uh, through notational systems, where which, which I had to make decisions about certain aspects of the notation, uh, aesthetically or whatever, the composer leaves a certain uh, leaves a certain vacuum that you are able to fill as a you know, as a as a performer. So that was always really you know, important to me. And the fact that the composers were mostly there to to comment on what you're doing and how, or how you're doing it. And most of the time, thankfully, I can report that you know, I was, that was a very good experience for me. Not 100%, for sure. There were composers who were not happy with the way things went. And uh, but that was the, the challenge. What, what what was in it for me was the challenge of having the the composers right there, handing you the music and then you in the end had to play it for them. Uh that was what was an extremely exciting and 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 led in my case, to my involvement with programming, like the North American Music Festival, either, right. and I wrote, did those programs for 10 years, which 10 years. Uh, which le- and it's, it's an aspect that I always found very, very interesting, and I always thought a lot about how to put programs together, how to make a program a real trip for the audience. And you know, so the, the, that that was a creative outlet for me, uh, as a as as a player too. Mm-hmm. You know, taking these, deciding on a, a a specific program, and then and then deciding how to approach it. So whether it was a solo recital I was doing, or you know, whatever whatever uh, ensemble program, um, that they were just series of pieces. That didn't relate to one another, or didn't, you know, you know what I mean. So that was, yeah. you know, that was a creative output. Earl Brown's music, his graphic pieces, it demanded a certain amount of, uh, a great deal of input from the players in terms of, as I said, how they sound, because they're basically graph graphs that you uh, that you make live in, uh, in real world and of sound and. Uh, But, you know, I don't really consider that improvising because I made choices, predetermined what I was going to do. Maybe in the macro, on the micro level, it was maybe improvised. But in the macro level, usually it was not. I didn't consider it to be improvised. So that whole wonderful um, broadness of the repertoire was what kept me excited and not technique and not learning a particular instrument really super well you know
0: yeah something that you said earlier that was sort of interesting to me was you know you said well uh i didn't want to play pieces if somebody else was playing them, you know, I, so you didn't play Ziklus for instance, because Max Newhouse was playing that one. right? And so you tried to carve out your own, um, your own, uh, repertoire that, that resonated with you, uh, by looking for composers, as you mentioned, that did graphic notation or or this kind of thing. So do you think that, um, so is, is that still, would you give that advice to young players today that you should find a personal repertoire that, that, you know, maybe not play the music that so and so is playing, but find something that works for you. Uh, and and how would you how would you say that?
1: Yeah, I would say with the uh, advancement in in the repertoire, the number of pieces available now versus what we had back in '65, or whatever. Uh, given that that it was a both worlds, I would say both. Uh, one should do the important pieces. And one should be always constantly looking for for new works. But a lot of that for me would be program driven, right? Not in other words, if you're doing a, a particular program where the the king of Denmark would just work perfectly on a specific spot on the program, you know, then fine, or C clues, or, or whatever. But uh, so what? It's not a matter of just isolated pieces, but for for me, it would be.
0: I think I understand more of the curatorial aspect of of concert programming is a is a more. Well, yeah,
1: sure. I understand that you know that certainly the the well known, well played the the, the, sophas, the you know the. Ray Bones, uh, you know, which they were heard hundreds and hundreds of times on competitions. Uh, Those pieces should be studied and and played. Uh, Studied, at least studied to the degree, to a certain degree, maybe not necessarily playing. But you certainly have to know the repertoire, know the composer's repertoire. Students have to know the composer's complete repertoire, not just the percussion stuff, and uh, that's very important. I think in terms of if you're studying if you're studying Sinarchus's percussion pieces, you know you need to read Zanakis. You need to you need to delve into his experiences in the architecture world and. Uh, and that's all, all going to have a cage, you know. You have to get to read his writings and Feldman too. I mean, all these guys wrote a lot of right? So, I would advise students to uh, do, to do both. I guess, yeah. But yeah. always, but innovation, no, definitely, uh, yeah, the new.
0: And and don't you think that it's important to try to cultivate relationships with composers and find someone that you know that you're really simpatico with and i i mean i think about all the time you must have spent with with morton feldman and uh and how fruitful that relationship ha- had proved and i think you know maybe maybe that would be um something that certainly i would am trying to do is find composers that that really resonate with me and and working closely with them to generate more music and and more yeah, personal absolutely. pieces
1: yeah yeah absolutely i mean that's that's the way it I mean, I was very fortunate because, you know, a lot of it for me wasn't being in the right place at the right time kind of thing. Um, you know, it just kind of, a lot of that stuff just fell in my lap. I mean, and I was very fortunate that uh, that, that um, the, the particular composers involved were happy with what I was doing and, yeah. and liked the way I was playing their music. And, and they're supporting me, you know, I mean, that was and uh, very very important to me Lucas was of course got me the job in Buffalo and was a very 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 influential uh, and very supportive of my work and he is, he was very very important to my my career yeah, yeah we over- uh, I'm Ooh. sorry
0: we didn't get a chance to really talk much about Lucas Foss but do you do you want to say a few words about him
1: well it's just you know he was music director of Buffalo Philharmonic and he started the center and I started playing his music because John Bergamo left town, and Lucas and John was playing Echoey and uh, Time Cycle, and those were well, mostly Echoey at the time. This this quartet, you know, for four players. Uh, you know the piece at all? I,
0: I don't know that piece. No. Oh, it's
1: a the classic. fantastic piece. It's for it's for a clarinet, cello, piano, and percussion. Okay. And which was. The instrumentation for Lucas Contemporary Improvisation Ensemble in L.A. in the fifties. You know, that those were the Howard Kauf cello and. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, the, the, that piece is for. It's called Echoi. E C H O I, It's for, and it's it's for um, for virtuosi. It's Four movements and it's just an incredible, uh, the percussion writing is, is, is fantastic. But anyway, I John couldn't do the piece anymore. So Lucas was in Buffalo and we were, so he, he asked me if I'd learn it. And, and so that's the first stuff I did of Lucas's. And again, he liked the way I was playing and that developed into a close relationship in terms of his percussion uh pieces uh he wrote a percussion concerto for me in 1972 i think on a ford foundation grant uh, percussion orchestra
0: what was the piece jan where you uh where the percussionist is like shouting or there's some like vocalizations that happen called
1: yeah. oh, paradigm or paradigm paradigm okay okay yeah 94 movements it's also for it's for uh, guitar Percussion and guitar, okay, and then three instruments, any instruments, high, medium, and low.
0: Okay,
1: you can select. So it's it's
0: that's a really great piece. I as yeah, I was doing and, research, and he yeah. heavily
1: uses texts, and and the percussionist it's for percussionist conductor. Percussionist leads the group, dictates certain things, and yeah. Make certain decisions in the performance to kind of shape It doesn't yeah, that's that's a, that's a pretty pretty out piece. Pretty yeah, good piece. yeah it another, is. <laughs> it Has another beautiful piece for two pianos and two two percussion, uh, where the percussionists play inside the piano. Called "Nee Bui Nee French for "no uh, noise and no speed." Um, it's a sign, a traffic sign in, in France. Ah. Uh, you, you would you would see near a hospital we need test no noise no speed.
0: I read recently the um, you wrote about the concerto the percussion concerto that he wrote
1: yeah right in pas I you know when Lucas died I wanted to do the piece never gets played it, it, conductors look at it and it, it, it's like nothing first of all the conductor doesn't have anything to do. <laughs> so, can orchestra conductors right away eliminate that. You know, they're not interested, and it involves a lot of it's. It's kind of crazy piece. It can be done in a chamber version of I think twenty five players or whatever minimum, but it never gets done. And when Lucas died, after Lucas died, I said, you know, I I I, want, I would like to try to encourage percussionists to take the piece on, and so I thought I'd write this article for a PAS magazine. I never. You know, no one ever contacted me. Right? I don't know if it ever, ever had any effect. But it, it is a piece that that is pretty special. And the, the percussionist has a lot to do with the controlling the sequence of things that happen in the piece. And it's quite quite an quite amazing a piece that involves a lot of uh, improvisation. And also you can use design to kind of set up of, you know, the instrument solo instrument it's kind of open certain things required certain you know, other instruments yeah, yeah. well
0: after I, I read that article and I, I got really interested in it and started trying to find uh, recordings and I, I can't seem to find any um, can't seem to find any recordings of that piece do you know no. if it had, it's never been recorded
1: no it's never been recorded um, a former student of mine Bob Schultz who lived in Boston uh, played it with uh, an orchestra there a few years ago Lost in Modern Orchestra.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Anyway, I don't think there's a video of it. And, and I see, I even, I wrote the, to uh, to uh, Evelyn Glennie, and then said, you know, Evelyn, this is some piece you could really do great in because you could make it your own piece. You could design, how it could be, you know, bring it up, up to date and get maybe some electronics or whatever, but she never responded. So yeah. It was a, I played a piece a lot. I played it with, I played it with the American Symphony in New York, the Israel, Israel Philharmonic Detroit Symphony, Germany, the, I did it with Berlin with the radio orchestra. Uh, he used to program it, and huh. when he was guest conduct, you know, and did it in Copenhagen. Uh, so, you know, I played, played it quite a bit around, but yeah. sorry it doesn't get to,
0: Well, I'll have to check it out, and certainly I'll uh,
1: because it's it's just exactly what a young percussionist could take on and make their own. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of leeway in it, you know, as far as what you can, how you can uh, shape it. Yeah. a a crazy cadenza, which.
0: Yeah, great. Well, I'm gonna check it out for for sure, and we'll (laughs) we'll uh, pass the word
1: (laughs) as best I can. Bye. Just here, you know, mentioning it now on your podcast. Yeah,
0: maybe this will spark some interest. Be, it's
1: published by uh, I think it's published by Salabert Editions, which uh, you can buy the score. I'm sure.
0: Well, I think we're getting uh, well, anyway. Yeah, getting right. yeah, we're getting long on time here. So, and yeah, I don't, sure. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to ask my last question, which I always ask okay. of every guest, which is. How does one live and sustain a creative life?
1: One lives and sustains. Well, I had a lot of help, and that help came from the composers and the rep repertoire, and that's the way I did it. Immersed myself in this repertoire. Uh, the challenges kept me kept me going. You know, kept me in the middle of it, in the, in the, in the fray, uh, in that world. And, uh, how do you sustain that? Well, you know, just keeping that, keep your ears open. Don't be, uh, you know, be open to trying new things and, and, and taking, taking new directions, uh, or not, or not taking a direct, you know, direction. I don't know. A lot of, you know, I never did, never got interested in world music. I mean, in the sense, I, I had my hands full with my the repertoire I was doing, you know, and yeah. to learn, to learn, and immerse myself in the in the in the culture of another country, in the music, you know, I it just didn't have for other people. Fabulous, Bergamo, look at you know any number number of people. Um, so it was, you know, this is my thing. And I've spent a lifetime learning and, and trying to to uh, keep relevant. I'm not so relevant anymore because I don't play anymore. Um, I, I don't. When I left the university, I, my studio was there. I didn't ever have a studio at home. And so, you know, I suddenly didn't have it. And then it was the lo- losing of my colleagues that, was tough on, on me. I mean, the people I worked with, you know, Morty, John, Eberhardt, uh, quit playing flute, and, and and so, and Lucas, Lucas passing, but these were hard on me, you know, in terms of keeping, sure. keeping relevant, keeping active, keeping playing. Sure. So now I, I love hearing young people playing and stuff that they're playing. My daughter has a career as a composer and pianist and new music, and so you know I, I'm in the in that world still. But. Yeah.
0: I can tell you that it was an honor for me to get to spend a little time with you. That's uh, definitely your name is one that I always associated with, uh, with some of the highest, um, uh, you know, the pinnacle of the percussion art form. So, um, I just, thanks a lot for, for sitting in and, and chatting with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I enjoyed it very much. I, I, uh, I think you're doing great uh, service with this podcast and, and, uh, and I wish you all the best of luck with that. Um, and, you know, I'd be interested in any feedback eventually that, uh, and I'll keep track of your website. You know, I got it on my favorites. And um, I, I wish you all uh, the best of luck. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Really, John. Good.
0: And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.